This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Hey there, friends. I was actually a little worried you wouldn't show up, being that it's National Banana Split Day and all. So tonight you get extra credit. Sorry, Chester. We're not here to split bananas. Try the Dairy Queen. Just put on a shirt before you walk in, will you? Hey, by the way, your picture on Facebook was a big hit this week. I always told you you were my handsome boy, didn't I? That's right. Yes, I did. Come here, boy. Whoa! Goddamn, Chester! Ah. Well, never mind, you scaly prick. Yeah, I love you too. Well, come on in, friend. Fuck a banana. We're here to celebrate storytelling. Mmm. Mmm. That's better. So tonight we're headed up to the Great White North, to the country built on dead beavers. Land of the Majestic Moose, the Atlantic Puffin, the exotic Otis Gyre. That's right, we're going to Canada. So smoke them if you got them and drink those glasses to the bottom, cause old Drew Blood has a tale to tell y'all. Hey, you're listening to the standard edition of this program. To get instant access to ad-free versions of all our episodes and hundreds of tales from our audio archives dating back to 2012, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu. Sign up today. It's a great way to show your support, and you'll get a whole lot for it. And authors, send your scary stories to drewbloodhorror at gmail.com. If you're selected, you'll get that full treatment. Shit. For our first tale tonight, we join our old pal Steve Vernon, master of metaphors and wizard of weird fiction. Boxcar tourism isn't the booming industry it used to be, but every culture has its enduring legends. So without further delay, I give you Rolling Stock by Steve Vernon. If you put your ear to the railroad track, you can hear the sound of train wheels thundering hundreds of miles away. I rolled on into the Big Apple inside the gut of a boxcar that stank of straw and old cardboard and an all-pervasive unidentifiable funk you'd swear had been moldering since Satan took his first teenage swan dive of rebellion from out of God's celestial hayloft. I felt the unmistakable reverberation of something coming, and yet I was as helpless to avoid it as a deer in a pair of oncoming headlights. Traveling by boxcar is out of style these days. Nowadays, people travel by cellular phone and megabytes and blinks of existence flashing by on some unknown deity's computer screen. But I don't care for any of that. I'm a bit of an archaism, I suppose. A man who likes to do things in his own way. And whenever I travel, I like to take the train. You want a picture of me? Color me lean and dark, streaks of lightning where the eyes should be. A few too many scars, a few too many unanswerable questions etched in the fur of my brow. Lines around the eyes where the crows tap danced a little too closely, making me older than you ever should guess. I wear a sailor's peacoat given to me by an old Dutchman tired of wandering. I've crowned myself with a black watch cap to keep the cold off my ears and the rain off my head. There's a stout pair of army boots, nearly worn out from a thousand miles of wandering, for the battles I had to fight. 
We'll get to one of these battles by and by. Like I said, I rolled into New York City just around midnight. I jumped from the boxcar. I felt the comforting crush of good old terra firma slamming up through the soles of my feet and accordionating my knees. I made a perfect three and one half point landing. Two feet, one hand, and the left cheek of my buttocks. What the hell? Anyone you walk away from is alright by me. I stood up, looking wary for the railroad police. I dusted myself off and looked around again, double wary. I couldn't shake the feeling of being watched by a pair of two of eyes. I turned around and that's when I saw him. He stood in the shadows of a switch house, staring at me like I was a midnight snack he'd been waiting for all night. The piggyback man. The one who never rides alone. Oh, I didn't know him right off, but I knew straight away there was something unnatural about this man. Hmm. Something in the way he seemed to move, even when he was standing still. Something in the way he looked like he was a tallow candle wicking itself down into a pool of nasty fat. Out Arkansas way, I'd seen a man standing in the belly of a burning barn, wearing a skin full of fire like it was some kind of kingly cape. He had looked like one of those x-ray pictures your doctor will show you. Like his skin was a lampshade, and you could see the bones shining blackly through. He had looked that way for a heartbeat or so, until he knelt over the body of the woman he had run into the barn to try and rescue. And the two of them went up together like thirteen-year-old pitch pine. That was the way it was with this fellow. Like he was sizzling away. Like he was vanishing. Like a mouthful of spit spat onto a pancake griddle. Hmm. Now, living on the road like I do, I'd seen a lot of hungry men. Bull up a wire out. That's the way it goes when you're living hand to mouth. Some fellows get thicker the emptier they get like bears in hibernation. While other men wire out like they were getting set to hitch a ride on the next southbound breeze. Usually when I see a fella looking this hungry, I try and find him something to eat. But I didn't think I could spare what this fellow was hungering for. He looked lean, but not the kind of hunger a weekend at McDonald's would kill. Not half a thousand Texas prime rib steaks were going to heal this fellow's hunger. There was something in the way he eyeballed me that made me feel like a virgin at a satire's ball. Like he was getting ready to kick my tires and take me out for a tespian. He walked on over. I thought about running away, but I've got this curious streak running about a mile wide right down the center of my soul. I was three parts alley cat, my granddad once told me, after pulling me out of an old Indian cave where I'd spent two nights speaking with something that hadn't had a tongue in a hellish long time. Granddad said, Easter, God put a question mark in men's souls so they'd know how to wonder why. But you don't always have to find an answer now, do you? I don't know about that, Granddad. I always thought wonder sounded like wonder, and sooner or later if there was something that moved beyond knowledge, I had to go on over and have a look. <laughs> so I walk on over to say hello to the piggyback man. Yeah, fine morning if the sun don't shine too hard, I said, even though it was around about midnight. He narrowed his eyes and blinked. There was something about that. Something in the way he blinked. Twice in the space of what should have been a single blink. Like his eyelids were trying to echo themselves. So I winked back one and kept on talking. Yeah, it's a fine night for a while. He blinked again and a chunk of his left ear fell off. 
Well, I bent down and picked it up. That probably wasn't the wisest thing I'd ever done, but I just couldn't help it. What the hell? It probably wouldn't hurt. The flesh was cold and hot, both together at the same time, like a snowflake when it's melting in your hand. I held the ear out to him. You dropped it, I said, trying to keep the terror out of my voice. He blinked. As far as I could see, nothing more dropped off. Yeah, not much for words, are you? Blink. I yawned and stretched. Mm, listen, I said. Philosophizing with you has been seven kinds of pure bliss. Yeah, but I've been sitting in that bus car the last three days. I'm ready to stretch my legs. Yeah, you want to walk with me then? I don't mind the company. But he finally spoke. When he did, it was the kind of sound you'd expect to hear from a snake that had somehow learned to speak. I never mind company, he said. A tooth fell out his mouth in mid-company. I think it was a molar. I didn't bother bending to pick it up. You're just all over the place, aren't you? A man of many parts and not afraid to say so, I said. Maybe you ought to mind your tongue before it falls out your jawbone. He hissed then, and I thought, yeah, he's a snake, all right. What's your name? He asked. Now, I learned the hard way a long time ago that names were just handles people used to get a hold of you. And some voice inside me warned that if I give this piggyback man a name, he'd grab a hold of me. I used to have a name, I said, but I lost it in my wallet. Call me Pilgrim, that'll do for now. He hissed again and I knew he didn't care for my answer. Just then a third voice spoke from out of the darkness. Hey, who the hell are you? A light, as bright as a full noon sun, stabbed me in the eyes. I blinked and for a moment I saw double. When my vision cleared, I saw who had spoken. A railroad cop, big and old and fat, from too many midnight fried chicken platters, <laughs> and too many swallows of bourbon. His red nose tattletoed that last story. It wasn't cold enough to blame the gin blossoms on the midnight chill. <laughs> the name tag on his shirt read McGuire. McGuire said the piggyback man, and I heard him grin. The railroad cop turned at the sound of his name. Would that be Charlie McGuire? The piggyback man asked playfully. Before I could say a word of warning, McGuire answered. Officer Michael William McGuire, and watch it to you. Oh, it's an awful lot to me, said the piggyback man. An awful lot. And then it began, and was over as quick as it started. McGuire didn't stand a chance. He didn't even see it coming, but I did. I saw a whisper of smoke blurring out of the piggyback man's eyes. And then a little bit of that smoke blew into McGuire's eyes. And for a moment it looked like the wind was blowing straight through his old cop bones. Mm. Then the body that the piggyback man was riding in dropped to the dirt. From the sound of it, not all the king's horsemen were ever putting that jigsaw puzzle back again. And McGuire, he looked at me and blinked. Twice. And that's when I knew for certain. I knew who he was, alright. This was the piggyback man. The one who never walks alone. More spirit than man, made out of hellfire and the stuff that dances in the shadows of atoms. Always looking for a ride on somebody else's back. Yeah. Always hanging around the darkest areas of the world, like cemeteries or subways or train yards. I know what you are, piggyback man, I said. I just don't know who you are. 
Why don't you give me a name to call you by? It was a stupid tribe, and it was all I had. If he told me his real name, the one he whispered to the darkness when nobody else was listening, then I could tell him where to get off. Once you know a thing's true name, you own it outright. (laughs) You think about that the next time somebody asks you for two pieces of identification, please. I'd be a fool to tell you that. Now would not, boy. He drew the words fool and boy out long and slow, like a pair of bullets whistling by your ears on the smoke-filled battlefield. And I knew by that sound that I'd clearly missed my shot. What did you say your name was? The piggyback man tried right back. I shook my head. Uh-uh, I said. Huh, not tonight. The thing that used to be McGuire smiled. Perhaps another night. When this body starts to burn. The piggyback man turned and just about walked away. He'd be gone and into the darkness if I didn't do something. And I had to, you understand. I had to do something about this monstrosity. It wouldn't suit me to let him slip on by. Mm-mm. I heard a train whistle blowing in the distant darkness. I put my foot on the rail beside me. I felt the quivering rumble of the approaching freight through the sole of my army boot. It was coming close. I had me a crazy idea. Yeah, another night. When that body starts to burn, I taunted. Yeah, it won't be long, will it now? Fat old body like that. It'll burn like running tallow, won't it? Ha ha ha. But the piggyback man paused. Yeah, you want something younger than that, don't you? You want something tastier. Something with legs that'll carry your father than the next whistle stop. (laughs) The piggyback man stood as still as he could. There was something in the way he stood reminded me of a fat man unsuccessfully trying to resist a freely offered French cream pastry. And I knew it was time to take my chance. My name is Easter Noon, I shouted. Capital Easter! Capital Noon! And you can spell it just like it sounds. The piggyback man didn't budge. I could feel his greed for fresh new life licking at my bones like a tongue of flame licking at a brand new log. Easter noon, I repeated, a little quieter, like I was casting a dare. My name's Easter noon, and I have walked through more shadows than the sun could imagine. I have stood in hollows so deep old Beelzebub would have to crane his neck downward to look me in the eye. I'm calling you out, here and now, piggyback man. I'm calling you out for the low-down, legless son of a bitch that you are. Then I drew a line in the dirt and waited. I heard the train whistle howling a little closer in the darkness. I hoped old Piggyback wouldn't keep me waiting too long because if that train passed before he jumped, I'd be in it as deep as I could get. Well, somebody must have been listening to my prayer because old Piggyback let McGuire drop stone dead. I could feel a cold wind whooshing up towards me, but I was as ready as I could be. I caught him. Smoke and wind and gnaw, catching after nothing that made up his something the way you might catch a wild dog in mid-pounce, twisting and holding it closer to my bones. I don't quite know how I did it, you understand. I had entered the borders of fly-by-your-seat land a long time ago. I just grabbed on, and somehow I felt them, like a handful of wet cellophane or something even thinner than that. Come here, damn you! Come here! I shouted. Then I heard the whistle howling closer, and I squeezed onto the piggyback man a little tighter and stepped onto the track, grinning like a crazy man in the sudden screaming headlamp. 
Hold on, piggyback man. Hold on. I'll take you with me when I go. That's when he twisted. I felt them twist somewhere deep inside of me. And it was like trying to hang on to a live buttered snake. I knew it was frightening that it didn't want to be inside of me when that train hit me dead on. I don't know if it knew just what might happen. I think it was just afraid of what could happen. <laughs> me too. I felt cold fingers inside of me, catching at my heart and my brain and my spinal column, catching at something beneath all that, trying to get a hold of whatever it was that was my steering wheel. It almost had me too, but I wedged my boot into the notch of the switch rail so that even if old Piggyback got a hold of me, he probably wouldn't have time to get away. The train was five feet away when I felt old Piggyback leave me. I could smell the stink of the rushing diesel as I felt it leave, and I knew that McGuire was probably not much good to the Piggyback man, and I hoped that whatever this Piggyback thing was, that it couldn't exist alone on its own two feet. So as I felt it leave, I threw myself sideways, fully expecting to feel the screaming pain of the steel wheels grinding my left foot down to something less than nothing. When the sole of my army surplus boot pulled away, and the rusty nails that held the sole to the body of my boot pulled away, and I tumbled head over ass into the dirt and cinders lying beside the track. The train held angrily by, and I was nearly pulled under the wheels by the slipstream. But I grabbed hold of McGuire's meaty carcass and held on fast. The train was gone as quickly as it came. Nothing but a bit of dust blowing behind it. The heavy reek of diesel and steel and the cold, musky scent of McGuire's dead body. I carefully stood, giving a silent thanks and apology to McGuire wherever he was now, feeling the uncomfortable roughness of railroad cinder ballast against the work sock on my left foot. I stood there for a long time, listening to the wind, and every now and then touching the rail with my sock foot, just to be sure. I thought about the engineer, and wondered if the piggyback man had a chance at him. I decided he hadn't because he hadn't a chance to ask the engineer his name. Hard to ask a question like that when you're smoke without any tongue. I thought about that big old train. Thought about the way sometimes engineers have nicknames for their diesels and about how they sometimes paint the name on the nose of their trains. And I wondered if the piggyback man had somehow got inside of it. I decided I didn't have an answer to that one and it made me shiver like the wind was suddenly colder than it needed to be. I stood there alone and shivering until the sun began to come up. Only one thing left to do. When I was done with that, I limped my way towards the city, grateful for the feeling of the sun on my skin and the touch of a dead man's boots. Thankful that McGuire hadn't had very small feet. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. 
Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Talk about a parasitic personality. You've been listening to Rolling Stock by author Steve Vernon. A good reminder to always use an alias. I recommend using a little wordplay. Not that I'd do that myself or anything. Uh, never mind. A little about the author. Steve Vernon has been telling and writing horror and ghost stories for the last 40 years. If you like this story, you really ought to check out his many other tales available in ebook, paperback, and audiobook format. You can find Steve Vernon's blog at stevevernonstoryteller.wordpress.com and follow him on Facebook or on Twitter at Stephen Vernon with a PH. For his excellent novels and short story collections, look him up on Amazon and Audible.com. Steve's been with us since the beginning, and if you haven't, please do pick up one of his works from Audible and let him know who sent you. This next story is from a new author to the podcast, Gavin Sibley. In it, we join a farmer with some unearthly lawn care issues. So without further delay, I give you Dead Grass. 1958, by author Gavin Sibley. The stars were clocking out after another productive night, just as the sun was getting ready to begin his daily shift in the sky. Ed always rose before the sun did, when the warm colors of the day had not yet conquered the cool colors of the night in their eternal battle. The pride of being one step ahead of the rooster is what always gave the 67-year-old man the energy to pull back the sheets and pull up his boots. Once the worn-out leather, cut, cured, and creased by Ed himself, was fitted loosely around the farmer's shin, he gently set his eyes on the woman still asleep in his bed, the same one he had married 47 years ago. Back when a fella would take his gal dancing instead of to a drive-in theater to see a cheesy sci-fi flick and try to cop a feel. The kids today with their leather jackets and oily hair would never appreciate the feeling of laying their eyes on the pretty stranger in the jazz club for the first time. How her short blonde hair bounced as she charlestoned up and down the dance floor. How the chandelier's reflection onto her pearls made them gleam brighter than the stars above. Ed hadn't seen those pearls in an eternity, and he wouldn't recognize them if he had. The years being smothered on the inside of the plywood jewel box had caused their once mesmerizing aura to grow stale. Ed squinted at the stagnant shape of his wife lying in bed straining to recognize the woman he had fallen in love with back before the skip in his step was replaced by a limp. That limp accompanied Ed down the hallway towards the kitchen. He brewed, then poured his coffee. He drank it black, so black he could see the reflection of his nostrils getting closer and closer as he brought the mug up to his quivering lips. He drank the beverage slowly, letting the steam travel up his face and seep into his pores. He allowed the caffeine to gently ease him into the morning. It told him that the time for sleeping was over and the time for working was now. Ed didn't argue. When the last drop of coffee had settled in his stomach, Ed made his way through the kitchen over to the back door. But before he had reached the handle, something caught his attention. Standing just inches in front of him was a grizzled old man. As Ed continued to stare into the mirror, he felt the smooth patch of skin on his head where his Bing Crosby-style haircut used to sit. Half a jar of pomade still sat in the back of Ed's medicine cabinet, but years of neglect had caused it to crust over, sealing the jar shut. Ed refused to throw it out, 
as if one day he'd wake up and find his hair back on his head, growing stronger and blacker than ever. He never would. Once Ed had familiarized himself with every new wrinkle on his face, he stepped outside to greet the rising sun. The dew on the grass glimmered as Ed reached for the rusty bucket. Ed followed his daily routine so meticulously that if he were to stray from it, the world would probably spin off its axis. In sequence, it was to milk the cow, feed the cow, feed the chickens, get their eggs, eat breakfast, plow the fields, eat lunch, tend to maintenance, eat dinner, shut the coop, lock the barn, listen to a radio program, fall asleep. This was the way it was done. As he lumbered over to the barn to cross off the first item on his mental checklist, his eyes scanned over the land upon which he had built his humble life. Suddenly, Ed became fixated on a particular patch of this land, sitting directly under the rust-colored barn. The ground surrounding the riggedy house wore a decaying yellow coat, dead grass. The area gave the impression of a sand-colored island in the middle of a vast green sea, perfectly isolated in its own bubble. It had been raining all week. The mud caked on Ed's boots was evidence of that. How is it that this one 2,000-square-foot perimeter was left parched? As Ed drew closer to the barn to investigate, the grass crumbled beneath his feet, leaving a trail of dust in his boot prints. He reached for the barn door with a shaky hand and drew back the withered wood like a curtain. Upon stepping into the barn where he was usually greeted by an orchestra of friendly moves, today he was greeted by the sound of tortured grunts. Ed only owned one cow. He got his butter and cheese from Al's grocery in town, so he only needed the cow for milk which he drank with dinner, or on the rare occasion his wife would bake a batch of cookies. The cow's name was Dottie, and she had lived in Ed's barn since he had bought her at a rancher back in 53. Every day, Ed looked forward to visiting her in her stable and seeing what her udders had to offer. He found it relaxing, sitting on a stool next to her. He'd ask her how her morning was going, and she had always responded with an enthusiastic moo. Today, Ed didn't need to ask to know that Dottie's morning was not a pleasant one. When he saw Dottie, his eyes widened and his bucket fell to the floor, the sound of the drop masked by the hay. Her eyes were bulging, bloodshot, throbbing blue veins pushed against the milky white film of her cornea as if about to burst through. She was convulsing on the ground turning and rolling over herself like she was trying to get something off her skin. The noise she made, almost shrieking, was no sound Ed had ever heard a cow make before. Like something was caught in her throat. So much pain in her yelps. Then he saw her legs, twisted and mangled, bones piercing through her skin. Her once white fur was now painted with dark, grimy blood. Her hooves were red and glossy. It looked like the outer layer had been scraped off, leaving the tender inner layer exposed to outside. Ed felt dizzy. His mouth was dry. All of a sudden, his heart and lungs were lead, weighing him down. He turned towards the barn's door, leaving his mutilated companion behind. He ran towards his house as fast as his 67-year-old legs would allow, leaving another trail of disintegrated dead grass beside the first. As he got closer and closer to his home, he could make out the silhouette of his spouse preparing his breakfast through the kitchen window. He couldn't let her see what he had. Ed threw himself through the side door with his mind set on one thing pushing away chairs, tables, and any other unfortunate object that stood between Ed and his shotgun. 12-gauge, double-barreled. The recoil on it alone was enough to pop an arm out of its socket. Ed pulled the weapon down from its place on the mantle, tearing the cobwebs that linked it to its stand. 
He blew the dust out of the barrel and loaded it up, ignoring his wife's frantic plea for an explanation. His hands familiarized themselves with the steel as Ed rushed back to the barn, his mind caught up in the dread of having to kill one of his animals. The meat Ed and his wife ate also came courtesy of Al's grocery. Even when Ed's animals would die naturally, he wouldn't eat them. The shotgun he held was passed down from his father and had simply been a decoration on Ed's mantle for the better half of 20 years. Dottie's anguished howls were now so loud Ed could hear them from the outside of the barn. Ed could feel her pain more and more with every step he took towards her. He found the cow the same way he had left her, and the ounce of hope he had had that when he'd return she'd be better was bulldozed. Ed attempted to take one final look at his cow, but that deformed bludgeon mound of flesh, bone, and blood that sat in front of him was not the cow he had come to love. He pointed the gun at what he was barely able to identify as the head and gritted his teeth. Ed didn't have the words or the time to send his friend out with a proper farewell. He just knew it needed to be done. With all the muscle he had that wasn't overcome by emotion and terror, he slammed the trigger back. The barrel erupted with the force of a wrecking ball. Shotgun pellets and skull fragments exploded out the back of Dottie's head with such power they got stuck in the wooden wall of the stable. A sense of calm washed over Ed as the splattered blood and brains of the cow dripped down his face. Emotionless, Ed walked inside, sat down, and ate breakfast, his face still sopping with Dottie's blood. Ed didn't finish his chores that day. Instead, he phoned the sheriff and explained the story. He asked the sheriff if he could come down and investigate to hopefully find an answer for what had happened to Dottie before Ed went in to check on her. The sheriff, a stocky man around Ed's age, give or take a few years, arrived at the farm around 1 p.m. Ed greeted him solemnly and began walking him in the direction of his deceased cow. On their way to the barn, Ed noted the circles of dead grass, not wanting to leave out any details. The sheriff didn't seem interested at Ed's mention of the farm's vegetation. They smelled the cow before they opened the door, and when they did open it up, the stench of death hit them like a brick wall. The rotten stink pushed back against the two men as they walked towards the source. It was trying to keep them away. Flies had already started to migrate onto the fresh carcass. They were so busy gnawing away at the cow's exposed innards that they didn't notice the two men choking back vomit at the side of the body. The reality of the situation finally instilled itself in Ed, and his eyes began to sting from tears. The sheriff, who was no stranger to gruesome aftermaths, still noted how he had never seen something that grisly. He was quick to conclude that what had happened was not an act of God. Probably some deranged sociopath who likes to see little things get hurt. Probably too afraid to go after people because he's worried someone will pull a gun and his head will end up like Dottie's. Ed couldn't do anything but nod. Look, y'all lock your doors tonight and keep that 12-gauge handy. I'll come back tomorrow around the same time to check on you and your missus. I'm sorry for what happened. There's some sick fucking people out there. Dottie just happened to get in the way of one. Again, Ed nodded. Once the sheriff was off the property, Ed's wife tried to get an explanation out of the dazed man. Cow was sick. I put it down, were the only words she got. The couple crawled into bed that night, trying to act like nothing had changed. Imagining Dottie was still in the stable, setting in for the night, instead of in pieces, covered in dirt. Out of an old habit, Ed tried to push his hair behind his ear, but when his hand reached back, all it was met with was a rough scab. He scratched at it, and painlessly it came off. He brought it to his eye. It was dried blood. 
some of Dottie's he must have missed when rinsing it off. Ed stared at the blood, the last bit of Dottie left. He rubbed it back and forth on his fingers until he fell asleep with it still on his hand. He was awake. He couldn't move, he couldn't feel anything, but he was awake. Silver light surrounded him. He was drowning in it. He looked down. He couldn't see his body. It wasn't there. But he was awake. He was conscious. The silver light continued to pour over him, and he started to hear ringing. The ringing was coming from within, but he could still hear it clearly. It reverberated in the inside of his skull and traveled down, filling his body up. His whole body was ringing now, and he regained a sense of his existence. He could feel, tingling, stinging, burning. He was paralyzed. He could feel everything but do nothing. His skin was on fire. The ringing intensified and the silver light got brighter. Then he felt a touch on his forehead. He was himself again, his sight, his skin, no ringing, no silver. He was acutely aware of himself. Things he never felt before were suddenly all he could feel. His blood rushing through his veins, the marrow within his bones, all of his nerve endings connecting back to his brain. Then another touch on his forehead. No more feeling, only sight. But his eyes weren't open. It was like what he was seeing was being projected to his brain directly and he was incapable of turning away. Then his wife appears. She stretched out on a table. Her mouth was open, her eyes unblinking. If it weren't for the slight rising and falling of her stomach, she would look dead. With his eyes stuck on his seemingly comatose wife, Ed watched as a long gray finger hovered over his wife's head and slowly tapped her forehead. With that touch, the skin on her forehead began to part as if being slit with a razor down the middle. Ed winced, expecting to see blood, but there was none to wince at. Her skull was now visible, pearly white as if it had been polished. The finger returned over her head. Once again, Ed watched as it lightly touched the naked bone between the separated flesh. A crack formed in the skull and started to widen. The skull began to split further, like someone was driving a chisel down in the center of the woman's head. Ed tried to close his eyes. If he could, he'd dig them out, but the image of his suffering spouse prevailed. There was now nothing shielding her brain from the outside world. Ed knew what was coming next and he braced himself to see that leathery finger stretch out once more. Like clockwork, it slowly emerged from just beyond Ed's visual horizon. This time, when it touched the woman, it stayed. The finger applied pressure into the woman's tender brain, pushing harder and harder until a well formed in her frontal lobe. It pressed harder. The finger was now submerged in the brain. The point where Ed couldn't take any more had long passed. He had become a vessel of himself. He looked past the image, through it like a window, focusing on the other side and not on the glass in front of it. The silver light returned, flooding Ed's vision. His wife was gone. Ed shot up in his bed, sweat pouring out of him as he hyperventilated. The window was wide open. The stars were gone. Nervously, Ed turned his head to his right. There was his wife, sleeping soundly, her back facing him. Ed's heart stopped racing, and he relaxed. He made his way down the stairs, hoping that his coffee would clear his mind of the event. If anything, the coffee convinced him that what had happened was a fact and not just a product of grief and an overactive mind. He needed fresh air. It would clear his head once and for all. He began his walk to the door, and like always, was met by his reflection. 
Today, there was a new addition to his face. In the middle of his forehead was a scar. A scar so subtle, one would guess it had been obtained during childhood. But this scar was new. No amount of coffee or fresh air was going to help Ed now. He stumbled back into the wall with a pounding headache. Then he remembered his wife. He traversed the stairs two at a time, unbothered by the effect a stunt like that would have on his fragile body. The door to the room flew open, and Ed tore the neatly tucked cover from the bed. He reached his hand out and touched her arm, the same way he had done it on their first date. He rolled her over to come face to face with a scar identical to his own. Neurotically, he shook her by the shoulders, trying to wake her up. Her head rolled back and so did her eyes. Then, her mouth opened, and she let out a guttural shriek that Ed recognized from in the barn the day before. Ed stepped back, hand on his mouth and tears in his eyes. His wife started furiously scratching at the wrinkled skin on her arms, not stopping when it drew blood. The screaming continued. It drove Ed mad to hear the woman he loved in so much pain. He couldn't bear it. He needed to make it stop. He went to the mantle. When the sheriff arrived at the farm to check on the man and his wife, he stepped over the dead grass that now surrounded the main house. His knocks were met by silence. He tried the door, unlocked. The sheriff drew his weapon without hesitation. A familiar smell crept up his nose as he ascended the creaky stairs. At the top, he could just make out the sound of sniffling. The sheriff pushed open the bedroom door to find Ed on the floor, clutching his shotgun, covered in blood. This time, it wasn't from cattle. Ed wept, his tears falling down to the floor and pulling with the spilt blood of his wife. Ed looked at the sheriff directly his eyes filled with guilt, as if begging the sheriff for help. Ed was tried in court. He pleaded guilty without trying to explain what had happened. He wasn't confident it even had happened, and even if he was, he sure as shit didn't have an explanation. Ed was sentenced to death by the electric chair, a fate he welcomed with open arms. He was done with the world. Everything he had known to be fact had crumbled with the dead grass. He couldn't picture his wife without that scar, without thinking of that silver light, that gray finger. Everything before that night was gone. Now Ed sits in his cell on death row, staring out the window while he eagerly awaits the executioner. Every night, Ed can see the stars through the windows. His forehead throbs as he stares blankly at them beaming down. He knows they're staring back. Well, there goes the neighborhood. You've been listening to Dead Grass 1958 by Gavin Sibley. A good old-fashioned tragedy. And a reminder to us all that shit happens, even in a nice place like Canada. Also, no matter how well you preen your lawn, an alien can fuck that up for you in an instant. A little about the author. Gavin Sibley is an 18-year-old writer from Ontario who recently got into writing horror stories. He loves the genre and the great stories that have come out of it and wishes to continue trying to scare people with his tales. Hell, I think he did a pretty good job of it, bud. He thanks you all for listening and hopes you all enjoyed the story. I know I did, Gavin. Keep up the great work, and thank you. And while you're at it, please remember to stop by our Apple Podcast page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and subscribe. 
The charts are based on subscriptions, not listens, by the way. So feel free to accidentally subscribe as many times as you want. I won't tell anyone, I promise. And if you feel like spreading the word and helping old Drew Blood out and convincing a friend or two to subscribe to my podcast, that would help me out greatly, and I'd really appreciate it. To hear a premium ad-free edition of tonight's and all our other podcast episodes, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the patrons link in the upper menu. You'll find yourself at chillintalesfordarknights.com where you can become a patron for as little as $5 a month and get access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012, including past episodes of this program and all our other shows, and hundreds of standalone releases, all of them ad-free and available to download or stream. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chillin' Tales for Dark Nights there where you'll get all our latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. You'll find me personally on Facebook and Instagram and sometimes Twitter. Sometimes. And remember, we're accepting submissions. If you've got a story or two you'd like to be featured on this show, send it to drewbloodhorror at gmail.com. If selected, you'll get the full treatment. Afraid this is where we part ways, friend. At least till next week. So grab a drink for the road. And do me a favor, will you? If you see Chester out at the Dairy Queen, just make sure everything's amiable, okay? Well, I'd like to take a minute to recognize a few of our YouTube crew. Ellen L. Sander, Owen Tripp, and Marty Wood. I really appreciate the nice comments last week, y'all. Thank you. So, without further delay, Ellen L. Sander, Owen Tripp, and Marty Wood. May the wind be at your back, and may the road rise up to meet you. If the grass is yellow, let it mellow, and go fuck yourselves. (laughs) Good night, y'all. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.